So over the last um, several weeks, I've been kind of unpacking the basic tenets of Buddhism, mainly the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are um, the, uh, the ground of which all of the Buddhist teachings are, you know, kind of come from, right? I think I talked last week about the, there's this teaching that uh, Sariputta, one of the um, later, you know, disciples or students of the Buddha gave the teaching is that um, as if all, or in the same way that all of the animals on the planet can fit a footprint, Inside the footprint of the elephant, the same thing is true that all of the teachings of the Buddha uh, can be found within the Four Noble Truths. And um, I like that because it, at first I started to think, well, what about what about the rhinoceros? You know, like what about the hippo? But you know, the understanding of well, as far as with feet or legs, you know, that's the the biggest. And then also in Asia, uh, elephants were quite common. And so there's this kind of uh, this analogy. And in the same way, I've been focusing on the Four Noble Truths and really breaking them apart each one at a time, unpacking. Um, Buddhism has gotten very complicated over the last, you know, 1,500 years. Uh, in the, what's talked about, and what we really focus on here is what's called early Buddhism, or northern school Buddhism is an... Wait. Northern? Southern school Buddhism is another way of of talking about it. Um, And so the early Buddhist teachings, in other words, the teachings that were taught by by the historical Buddha, were very simple. And um, there was once this teaching... um, of course, 2,558 years later, I'm translating a story that has been told and passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation in many different languages and then translated into English by some British scholar who probably didn't know anything about Buddhism and just knew about language and linguistics, right? So it's important to understand that as we're looking at um, these teachings. But best we can tell... The Buddha pointed to uh, all of the Dharma, the Dharma meaning the teachings of the Buddha or the teachings that we can uncover from just uh, sitting quietly in nature, actually. It's another way of looking at it. My favorite translation of the word Dharma is that, uh, that which is true in nature or the truth that's found in nature. So the nature, what nature? This nature. What's different than the nature within us or the nature that's out in the redwood forest? Not much, really. So this um, discovery, this unpacking, is a way of helping us give language to. But what, so what the Buddha said is that all of the Dharma uh, can be understood by a seven-year-old person, by a seven-year-old child. And he actually was giving this uh, teaching um, to his son when he was seven. And I like to think of uh, the Dharma or the Buddhist teaching. It's kind of like when you go... How many people have been to a foreign 
land where they speak a different language and you don't understand. How many people have? How many people have been out? You know, out of your area of understanding when it comes to language. So maybe you've been. You know, I mean, I've I've done this quite a bit in different uh, places in the world. And there's this way in which there's this like real desire to want to know and understand. And then slowly, though, over time, what seems like kind of gibberish, you start to pick up a word, maybe a sentence, maybe you learn a phrase or two, and then all of a sudden this whole new world opens up to you. You ever had that experience? I had that experience in Thailand where I'd, and in Indonesia where like I just had to learn uh, hello, thank you, and goodbye. Those were the three things I needed to learn in, or, at, in order to feel somewhat um, comfortable. Uh, and then slowly over time, though, more, you know, more and more was revealed through paying attention, close attention, through practice. That the Dharma is true in the same way. That we don't even understand what we don't understand. We just don't know when we first come to practice. There's some intention, perhaps, you know, you know, calming the mind, um, understanding about some of the uh, uh, teachings. But we just don't know what we don't know. So I like that uh, because it's a way of coming out of ignorance. Ignorance isn't a problem necessarily. I mean, some people want to just stay ignorant, right? But the coming out of ignorance takes some effort and some curiosity. And we really have to practice. And so the Buddha presented the Dharma, the teachings, uh, as a way to do that. So the Eightfold Path is what I've been focusing on, which uh, well, actually I just started last week. Uh, tonight will be the kind of the first uh, segment of that. So I'm just going to run through the Eightfold Path. So actually, I'll run through all four. So the first noble truth: there is suffering. In this world, there is suffering uh, that we experience. Stop denying it. Start owning it. Start seeing it so that we can do something about it. The second is that there's a cause. There's a cause of this suffering. Namely, ignorance and craving. Ignorance and craving is the cause of suffering. So back when I was a few minutes ago, when I was saying some people choose to stay in ignorance, right? That that you know that ignorance is bliss. It's true. It's also suffering, and there, there so there is this kind of blissful state of suffering. I uh, maybe many of you joined me in the seeking out the ignorance of bliss through substances or behaviors or uh, you know I used to watch <laughs> Law and Order SV, SUV. Is it SUV? SVU? SVU. Uh, SUV is a different thing. But uh, SVU over and over and over. I'd watch every episode. And it was like kind of hard to watch. But yet there was some, there was some relief I was having in the watching of sufferings from other It was weird, this thing that would happen for me. Um, and just the getting out of my own story and getting involved in all these other stories, right? Uh, maybe that's why television dramas are so exciting sometimes. But there's an ignorance in that, if that's all you're doing. Mm-hmm. And there's a suffering there, too. So the second noble truth is ignorance and craving are the cause of suffering. The third noble truth is that there is a way out, that there is an end to suffering. It's possible 
to end our own suffering in this life. In this life. It's not like, you know, 25 lifetimes from now. That's a bit of a misunderstanding. In this very life, we can free ourselves from suffering. The fourth noble truth is that there is a path. There is a a prescription to be followed. This is the Eightfold Path. So let me just kind of, I'll just read the headlines and then we'll go, we'll go, we're going to get into uh, just what's called wise view tonight. So the first uh, wise view, this is what I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Then, uh, well, I have to back up. There is a translation that says right versus wise. The word is uh, sama, like samaditi is poly word that two words that mean right view now it also can be translated to wise view which i appreciate so that's the way i uh, translate it so wise view wise intention wise speech wise action wise livelihood wise effort wise mindfulness and wise concentration. So this is the prescription that the Buddha laid out. And the understanding of these and the practice, not just the theoretical understanding. See, I just gave you that list. You'll hear that list. I'll repeat it every week. Don't worry, for the next eight weeks. And actually, I encourage you, um, when you're here, I mean, sometimes it's helpful. Some people take notes, and it's helpful for them to understand that. Um, But don't worry about the list. You know, if this practice is something that you're going to uh, incorporate, you have to soak it in. And there's a whole library full of books. You could take them out, check them out, take them home, read them, go to the logos. There's a thousand and five books on just wise view, you know. <laughs> so this is the path. You know, Buddhism isn't a religion. Buddhism is a path that leads to the end of suffering. This is what the Buddha taught. The Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Buddhism didn't form until hundreds of years after the Buddha died. So this idea of this is a path that we choose. You know, you're here for the first time. You're learning to meditate. I just want to meditate. Maybe you don't even want to be Buddhist. You don't have to be. I just started acknowledging that I might be considered Buddhist. I used to say I was a budding Buddhist or a pagan Buddhist or non-theistic. Whatever. It doesn't even matter. That's the other thing. The Buddha don't care. He don't. What the Buddha cares about and cared about, and that when I say the Buddha, I mean the Buddha in you, the Buddha in me, The Buddha is the awakened truth through practice and experience. That is the word Buddha means awakened one. That that's, when the Buddha taught, that's what the Buddha cared about. People awakening. Wake up. And I always think with like a smack. Like wake up. Wise view is a place to start. This is, I think I talked last week about, this is like such a huge place to start. 
wise view right from the beginning. What does this mean? Well, let's, let's look at that a little bit. On some, on some level, it just means this, understanding that they're suffering, understanding its origin, understanding its cessation, and understanding the way that leads to the end of suffering. So the Four Noble Truths. This is the beginning of wise view. But really it goes a lot deeper because there's what's called, well, let's see. There's these terms that I don't like. Supramundane and mundane view. Okay? I like to translate them as relative view, ultimate view. Okay? The relative view is understanding the Four Noble Truths and how the Four Noble Truths fit in our life. Understanding about suffering, the awareness of suffering. Understanding about karma and what is karma, how does that play out in my life. Not figuring it out, because that will just lead to vexation and craziness. That's what the Buddha said. So try to determine our past karma will lead to vexation and craziness. So I'm going to actually focus a little bit on (coughs) karma tonight. Because this is, uh, I, I feel like, an understanding of what wise view is. So, Four Noble Truths, Karma, Three Characteristics of Existence, which is suffering, impermanence, that which arises, passes away, all things change. And that there is no fixed and permanent self. In other words, from a Buddhist perspective, uh, there, the understanding is that there's no soul. This idea of uh, a fixed and permanent thing that is me, that when I die, it will go there. This is uh, not a concept within Buddhism. You also have to remember, long before Christianity, Buddhism was around. And um, in Hinduism, there is this kind of multi-god understanding. And then so there's all this, and there's a, there's, a re, there's a very fixed understanding about soul, the word Atman. And the Buddha was saying Atman is a, is a fixed view. It's not open, and it's not helpful, because it's not a reality. This is the Buddha's view. So he really stepped out. This is where, where I believe that the Buddha was rebellious. That he stepped out and said, now actually, is that helpful to really think that way? And then investigate for yourself. If the three characteristics of existence are true, if nothing lasts, everything changes, there is no fixed and permanent anything which we've proven and proven and proven through science now. And that there is suffering and there's an, an end to suffering. Because that, that, that would mean that suffering is also permanent. Like original sin which the Buddha didn't even talk about. So why karma? Let's talk about karma. First, let me just read, let me read this. uh, It's called a stanza or a teaching from the Buddha. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, suffering follows you as the wheel of the the cart follows 
the track of the ox that pulls it. Phenomena are proceeded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. So in Buddhism, there, the, the word heart is not actually a heart. That it actually, uh, the word is, uh, is chitta, and chitta means heart-mind. So you could say the same thing, right? Phenomena is preceded by the mind, ruled by the mind, made of the mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind. And suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart follows the track of the ox that pulls it. Phenomena are preceded by the mind, ruled by the mind, made of the mind. If you speak or act with a calm or bright mind, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. So this is the Buddha talking about karma. And what what are you getting out of that phrase, out of that teaching? Whether it's heart or mind, what what comes what comes to you? Just anyone. I'm glad into the world with negative attitude, and you know, attract negative energies to me. If mm-hmm. I go out into the world with a positive attitude, with good energies, then that's what's going to be attracted to me. So this cause effect. If I'm leaving with a mind that is negative, then I'm going to see the world as negative. And actually, chances are, I'm going to be in some negative shit. Mm-hmm. Right? And if I lead, the, um, if I lead, if, or if I, uh, lead in the mind or with, or with a heart that is calm or bright, then what I may experience in life is calm and bright. If that's, yeah, I mean, that's... This whole... Um, term as the wheel of the cart follows the track of the ox that pulls it. So where are we in that? Where is our mind heart? The ox. The ox. That's right. Or some would say, well yeah, no, the ox and then that the karmic momentum is what is being pulled behind. So we are the ox as we move through life in this particular translation. I like it because it it firmly plants what happens to us on us. It's karma. The word karma actually means action. Action. That's it. Intentional action. Now, if when someone talks about past karma, what that actually means is work to be done. So if we're working out our karma, it is past actions that are coming to fruition in the present and we have work to do. So this is the two ways of looking at, at the word karma or karma. Sanskrit, it's karma. Um, and I just prefer Sanskrit terms. And uh, Pali, it's comma, but it's the same same understanding. So intention, action, in the present moment, not fate. 
This is so important. Not fate. Fate does not exist in the realm of karma. It's not predestined. I love this idea. This made it seem... Because, you know, past actions coming to fruition in the present moment can mean, wow, anything I've done in the past is going to come and have some fruition. That's true. Like the ox and the cart from the uh, Buddhist perspective. Now what I choose to do with when that karmic momentum appears is the actual turning point. Does this make sense? So we have, so it's, this is where free will comes into play. We have free will. It's not fate. It's not predestined. So in early, Buddha, in early Buddhism, uh, they talked about this karma acts as a feedback loop, right? So kind of what I was just saying. So with the present moment being shaped by the past and present actions. Present actions shape not only the future, but also the present. So if I'm needing karmic implications, in other words... Um, it's not like parking lot karma in this in that way, of like because I cut someone off and stole the parking lot, then I'm going to not get a parking spot next time I go into. It's not really that. It's really like when somebody cuts me off and steals my parking spot, how do I react to that situation? That's actually the creation of karma in that moment. Why that happened, how that happened, doesn't matter. How I deal. Or relate to the present moment, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. That's what matters in the karmic, in the idea of karma, in this karmic momentum, the feedback loop. So one of the ways that um, karma is talked about uh, in the early Buddhist uh, teachings is like the flowing of water. Right? So sometimes the flow from the past is so strong, it's like a heavy current. You know, you think about a creek or a stream that's, you know, a big storm. It's this heavy current. And uh, you can't do much to, you can't barely get across. All you can do is kind of hold fast and let it wash over you, right? But this, sometimes our karmic momentum is so strong that that's all we can do is hold fast, not react, not retreat. Just hold fast. But then there's other times when the flow is gentle enough that it can be diverted in almost any direction. So there is also those times where, like the parking lot, right? where we can, okay, how can I meet this challenge? Have you ever been in a place where you're like, okay, I can meet this challenge with generosity or kindness, or I can meet this challenge with some grace? Versus, you know, oh my God, I just got to not lose my mind in this moment. That's basically the difference of what I'm talking about. And I I like this idea of the flow of karma being like a stream or like a creek or a river. Because uh, it's constantly changing. And it's depending on the causes and conditions of how it presents itself. So karma is very, um, it seems very complicated 
Um, and it is to some degree because we just can't know. We don't, again, it's like, it's like learning a new language. You just don't know what you don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And on some level, it doesn't matter. As long as we can learn present time awareness and being with what is, the way that it plays itself out. And it's not like just resigning, oh, this is my negative karma, I'm just going to grin and bear it. It's more like, how can I be present for this and actually uh, allow it to shift? Like, uh, uh, based on my moment to moment, like how am I going to be present with fear, present with anger, present with uh, whatever it is, whatever challenge it is. This is a way of talking about karma. So instead of promoting uh, resigned powerlessness, right, the early Buddhist notion of karma focused on the liberating potential of what the mind is doing in every moment versus what happened and why. Why is this? Why is this happening to me? Right? Everybody ever, ever been there? <laughs> I've been there quite a few times in my life. And that's a moment of ignorance, caught in the karmic momentum. And meeting it with ignorance. And it's not, there's no blame. Instead, how can I learn from this moment? So there's a few different ways I, I was thinking about that. Oh, I'm sorry. There's another key kind of point here around causality. Um, it's a, a teaching from the Buddha. So it's not you know who you are or where you come from. It's not anywhere near as important as, as uh, what motivates you right here and now. What are you doing? What are the motives? And what is your intention even for coming to practice? Is it to get rid of your karma? If so, you're probably just going to have some more karma. Maybe positive karma, maybe negative karma. You know, There's this whole thing about good and bad karma. It's just karma. And it plays itself out the, based on past actions. Based on actions. Action fruition, right? There's this whole, all this stuff about, you know, it's in lots of different um, spiritual teachings or religions, right? This like, the seed that you sow is the, you know, the fruit that you'll get. But if you plant an apple seed and you want an orange tree, you're not going to get it, right? Just plant it and see. And whatever seeds you plant, you you also have to take care of, right? So if it's a negative... Uh, seed, you actually have to water that plant too. And we do that quite often by, by habitual behavior, right? by habits of mind. This is where greed, hatred, and delusion come into play. The, uh, what's called the kilesas, uh, the torments of mind. Sometimes it's called the three poisons too, three darts. Or something else. That's pretty much that. So one of the ways I think about this is uh, around like how can we bring this into action? Okay, so how can we deal with what's happening? I think of service, of uh, generosity, of the base. Some of the basic principles of our uh, practice is around kindness. And I heard this term recently that I really like, kindfulness. 
So there's mindfulness. Like an eight-year-old boy came up with this as he was frustrated and he was talking to a teacher. And, he's, and he was meant to say mindfulness. And they also do like loving kindness in this particular elementary school. And he was like trying to, he was like trying to convey how he feels like the teacher understood him. And he was like, this kindfulness. And it was like, oh, such a great... So now it's like spreading through the, you know, the mindfulness world. Kindfulness, kindfulness. This eight-year-old boy, he should get some money for that. <laughs> it's the fruition, though, of the seed that was planted with the teacher, with that went to a training and learned some mindfulness. And now this, this kid is finding a way to express what he couldn't express before. That's pretty beautiful. So service, when I think about service, um, I think about how can we be of service uh, when we see others suffering, others struggling. And not of service in the way of like, you know, sympathy, but service in the way of I too will suffer. I too have suffered. Maybe in the same way you are suffering currently. Maybe I have suffered in the past. So how can I be of service to that person or that organization or that situation? As a way, not of um, you know, getting something, but there is benefit, but really of solely being of service. Like This is a way to kind of shift from uh, maybe the judgmental mind that, because there's a way in which karma, and especially in India this has been used, Karma, there's a way in which karma has been used as a way to explain, oh, well, that person is, that's, it's their karma that they were, uh, that they are not an untouchable, or that they um, got cancer, or they're deformed, or their, you know, husband left them, or whatever the situation is. It's their karma. It's my karma to be rich and affluent and, you know, this or that or the other thing, right? So there's this disparity that happens, and a judgment around it. The law of karma is um, like gravity. It's the law of gravity. It just is. There's no judgment about it. It just is. The same thing is true with karma. And the other beautiful thing about karma is karma doesn't care if you believe it or not. (laughs) There's this teaching... Now I think is the time. It's a little bit along the line of what I'm talking about. Beings, this is a teaching from the Buddha. This is a, a translation of the way uh, that the Buddha is talking about karma. Beings are the owners of their actions. The heirs of their actions. They spring from their actions. Uh, they, they spring from their actions, are bound to their actions, and are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, for those they shall be the heirs. In other words, nobody gets away with anything that uh, generationally, within a, a lifetime, that there is this understanding of that karma plays itself out. And we don't have to impose our judgment on anything or anyone. And that that actually, in some ways, is just 
producing more what we could call negative karma in the term of ox and cart, right? Leading with a negative mind state is potentially going to cause more negative mind state. Is this making some sense? Yeah. Please. Jason, you know, uh, sometimes you hear about like purifying your karma mm-hmm. or um, doing spiritual practice such as bringing conscious awareness to your actions and that helps to uh, maybe, I don't know, help balance the karma or Purified the arising karma. Mm-hmm. Um, I was curious about dealing with like shit-strong karma. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you're getting hit with stuff, you feel overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, any suggestions? Well, it's <coughs> it's kind of like what I was talking about. The um, the when the flow of the river of karma is so damn strong that all you can do is not get toppled over, right? Like get a lasso and hold on to a branch. That it's it's quite literally the mind that you approach the negative or positive. Sometimes it's too, people are too overwhelmed by how good their life is. You ever heard that? I have. Or they're waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? So there's this way in which kind of leaning into or repelling away from, it's just the same push-pull, pleasure-pain or pleasure-aversion, right? So my direct answer to you is that is really yes. Like that's how you deal with the shitstorm of karma is you deal with the shitstorm of karma. That you don't run from it, that you don't try to avoid it, that you allow it to move through. And the, as far as the purification piece, that's what people call this meditation. In case you haven't noticed, right? It's not exactly the blissful ease, you know, kind of floating off on a cloud of sunshine all the time. Now there is uh, an, an opening, a lightening, a purifying of mind. They call this a purification of mind. That's what's happening here. Because where does karma play itself out? In the mind. Such as the kalesas, greed, hatred, and ignorance or delusion plays itself out in all of its different forms, right? Mara, as they say. Mara is the, the personification of kind of evil in the uh, stories of the, of, of, uh, the Buddha and in Buddhism. So just just one just one second. So the the idea of uh, keeping the practice going and living as blamelessly as possible from this moment forward, each moment, and each moment we have an opportunity. Each moment we have an opportunity, and this is I think I said before, and I'll, I'll talk more about it as we get further down the list. Right? What I'm what I'm casting today is the wide view of wise view. And that the second of that is intention. The next step on the path is what is wise intention? And where can we, because this is a lot, has a lot to do with karma, right? And, and by being mindful, you're not creating 
creating more negative Exactly. Exactly. It's like, um, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll say this. So a few years ago, um, I had a really hard time yeah, around relationships, around um, m- my name was kind of being slandered. There was some discrediting that was happening in, in the communities that I, you know, kind of frequent. And uh, on some level, so there was some action. That was my part. And there was some ownership that I needed to take. And the, the momentum of all of the kind of shitstorm of it, which was quite a big shitstorm actually, um, was on some level the, the karma that I had to bear. And so instead of turning away from it, I just dealt with it as honorably and kindly and compassionately as I could. Right? Um, and what happened for me, I'm sure it's not over, actually, I'm sure there's more waves to come, <laughs> but, the, I, but, the, what, but what I learned is to trust in the Dharma in a way that I cannot explain to you, and that that flow that seemed impossible, because believe me, I wanted to like go, I wanted to run, like move to another country, like whatever, you know, just, you know, close out the bank accounts, get on a plane, you know, we think about that. And so, but the work to do, and this is what I started with, that karma is both action, intentional action, and the work to be done. The work to be done, no matter if I would have jumped on a plane and went to their side of the planet, it still would have needed to be done. And so in that moment, and then choosing to stay close to my practice, actually, to, to begin to have a forgiveness practice, not only for myself, but for others. To have compassion for not only the suffering that is happening right in this moment, or in that moment, but actually to also have suffering for the, the offender. That that's work. That's purification. Right? So I'm just using a, just one example of something that, you know, I can, it's really close to me, something that I... I had to work work through that helped build build the confidence in this what I'm teaching about. There, you had something you want to say? Yeah. Um, well, earlier when you read um, about that, I think you were responding to all the um, yeah. Um, well, which which one? The um, one here or the one here? I'll just I'll just say it. Okay. Um, what what it brought up for me was um, like a one was like a locus of control as being within, and then um, as well like a way to prioritize. Mm. Like when I'm overwhelmed, I'm like, oh my gosh, I deal with this and that and that and that, and it's like, okay, yeah, I have my work out for me, but like, what do I focus on? Right. And like remembering that, like focusing on purifying the heart and the mind. And, the, and that that actually is enough because when that is in a stable place, then That's it's right. like okay, start here, That's then right. there, and uh-huh. just and flow, uh-huh. and that that um, it simplifies things yeah. to remember that like I can always just take a moment and come back uh-huh. to my breath, and then start yeah. there. Yeah, this present time awareness is mm-hmm. the key. The the staying, and that's why we practice in vipassana this insight meditation, this idea of present time awareness, because it's focused 
on the here and now, which is really all that we have control over, if any, actually. If we have any control, it's going to happen right now on what our next action is, what our next response is, what our, you know, that's the only, really, I mean, what else can we really control in life? What can you control? Our reactions to the rest of life. That's really it. And sometimes we can't even control that, right? Because there's habitual responses that just, you know. So, but yes, I mean, that practicing the present time awareness, the mindful uh, awareness of here and now. That's why we point back to that in this particular practice, in Vipassana practice. The word Vipassana means uh, insight. So we gain insight through the repeated uh, practice of present time awareness. When this, this is a teaching from the Buddha, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. It's talking about karma. It's talking about the idea of causality, cause and effect, ox, cart. When this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. This is considered this, that, conditionality. Because it doesn't matter what the this is, and it doesn't matter what the that is. It's like, you know, it sounds weird because it's not concrete. But it's open. To you know, to be whatever it is. This that conditionality is uh, one of my favorite ways of talking about karma. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there. Um, because the next step is starting to un- it just it's it's a weird step. <laughs> but I'll say two minutes about it, which is karma and the concept of rebirth <coughs> are connected. Okay, and so uh, I'll focus more on this concept of rebirth next time. But it's actually very simple. Rebirth is not, rebirth from the Buddhist perspective is not reincarnation. It's not transmigration. It's not any of those uh, other concepts. It's very different. And it's directly connected to karma. So the idea of reincarnation is that when I die, I will be born again into another being that is still me. The Buddha said this is not possible. Or, actually, I don't know if he said this is not possible. I know that he, that he de-emphasized that important, that that's not important. That's not emphasized within Buddhism, within his teaching. And then this transmigration of the soul. Well, the Buddha, the Buddha spoke out to say... Uh, 
anatta, which means no fixed and permanent anything. In other words, there is no soul that goes beyond. So then what's rebirth? Let's find out next week. (laughs) So we'll end there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.